Hello, I'm Stuart Craner and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast from the European Business Forum, Thinkers 50 Europe in Odense in Denmark. And one of our speakers at this fantastic event is Rita McGrath. And we're really excited that Rita's made the journey to Denmark for the first ever European Business Forum. Rita's the author of The End of Competitive Advantage, professor at Columbia Business School. Rita, welcome. A pleasure to be here. Now, The End of the Competitive Advantage was a huge, hugely successful book and a real breakthrough book for, for you. Uh, it's been a few years now. Mm-hmm. So what are you working What have you worked on since? What are you working on now? Oh, lots of different projects. Um, new book in the works, which is about inflection points, strategic inflection points. And one of the interesting things in doing the research for this new book is that between the time an inflection point gets going and the time it actually shows up on your doorstep, typically you have time. And that was the most interesting thing to me, which was that people always think about, oh my God, inflection points, you know, come out of the ether and eat us alive. But usually they've been brewing for some time. So let me give an example. Um, So back in 2000-something aughts, um, YouTube was created, and it was created by a bunch of guys who were fed up with how difficult it was to share videos with one another. And in the beginning, nobody really took it seriously, because what was it? You know, it was cat videos. I mean, who could take that seriously, right? But if you think about it, uh, YouTube, for the very first time, any individual anywhere with a smartphone or a recording device could share video with millions of people. And before that invention, you would have had to own a movie studio. You would have had to be you know, universal talent or something to, to do that. So it relaxed a constraint that everybody lived on. At the same time, you had around then the invention of Facebook. And if you wanted to send a message to a billion people before Facebook, you would have had to own printing presses. You would have had to own multiple um, media stations. After Facebook, you could send it instantly. And again, nobody took it seriously in the beginning because what was it? College kids sending beer bong pictures around to each other. Nobody really thought it was a big deal. And at the same time, around 2006, you had the uh, invention of Amazon Web Services. And again, for the first time, two guys in a garage could harness the computing power that you would have had to be IBM to use years before that. So you put those three things together, and what you've got now is this absolutely potent mix of being able to share video, share content, and do it all in a flexible computer backbone, uh, which had never been possible before. So one of the companies that really took advantage of this is a company called Dollar Shave Club. I don't know if you know about them. No. Dollar Shave Club. Okay. So this founder, Dollar... It sounds instantly appealing. It it is. It's lovely. Uh, So this guy, Mike Dubin, who started Dollar Shave Club, uh, was basically ticked off at how difficult it was to supply his shaving needs. So in America, I don't know what it's like here, but in America, you have to go to a drugstore. And because shaving razors are so expensive, they're like catnip for shoplifters. And so what they do is they keep them behind lock and key inside a door. So now imagine to yourself, this is going to require some imagination there. Imagine to yourself that you found a helpful shop floor clerk and you wanted to buy a razor. You had to go find that person, get them to unlock the they call it the uh, the shaving uh, fortress, and uh, open up, open it up and get your razors. And then the last I looked, a six pack of Gillette razors was something like eighteen dollars and ninety six cents. I mean, they're really expensive. And so this guy Mike Dubin said, "Why?" Does it have to be that way? We can make high-quality razors, we can source them from Korea, and we can send them to you on your doorstep once a month. So that was a good idea, right? That's okay. But what made it really take off 
past the inflection point, was he made this hilarious two-minute video uh, about how his razors were going to save, change the world, about how his razors were going to change the world. And, uh, and then broadcast it, it went viral almost instantly. Uh, people on Facebook became brand ambassadors. So people at Procter & Gamble, for example, would have paid Salesforce to do all of a sudden all this free publicity, hundreds of hits, 20,000 blades sh sold on the very first day this thing went live. And today, uh, Dollar Shave Club's now five years old. They are a very big sustainable business. Uh, Unilever bought them last July for a billion dollars. So they had a very successful exit. Uh, Procter & Gamble, their share of the men's cartridge market in the United States went from about 71% in 2010 to just under 60%. It's about 59% today. And totally took them by surprise. But this is my point about inflection points, which is, had you been paying attention and said, what constraint is being relaxed in the environment that I'm used to competing in, um, they, they could have possibly seen that and they could have you know, mounted a response earlier rather than getting whacked by uh, something that took them by surprise. Go back a, a stage, Rita. How, how do you define a strategic inflection point? So any industry, any company, uh, when, when you're founded, you're within an envelope of constraints which are dictated by the technology of the time, by what's possible at the time, and you grow up with that as part of your DNA. So, you, know, you folks are in um, publishing, right? So, if years ago, I mean, all of publishing was constrained by what's the cost of paper and ink? What are the union contracts around how we deliver what we do? What are the uh, constraints that limit how much reach we have, how much advertising we have? And yet, when something comes along that changes those constraints, that is the seeds of an inflection point. And because you're so used to dwelling within this envelope of constraints, you don't even see it coming. And what's, what surprised you about the research? Well, I think the surprising thing was how obvious it all is in hindsight. <laughs> you know, you look back and you go, well, of course, duh, we didn't see that. But in the moment, it's very hard. And I think part of it is what I call the problem of the dance floor versus the balcony. And so if you go to a dance and you're on the dance floor and you're in the action and you're dancing and you're moving and, you know, somebody were to ask you afterwards, what was it like? You would have said, oh, it was fantastic. You know, people wore great dresses and the music was loud and I got to meet all these fascinating people. But if you had stopped the dance and gone up to the balcony and looked down on the dance floor, you would have seen a completely different picture of what was going on that evening. So I think part of the message of the book is we need to be able to do both. You can't just stay on the balcony. If you just stay on the balcony, you're not going to make anything happen. But if you're so enmeshed, and this is where I see so many executives today being completely enmeshed in what's going on. You know, what's the next email? What's the next meeting? What's the next airplane flight? And they really don't take that balcony perspective and step back and say, what's the bigger picture here? And, and what, what's stopping them then? Just the, the fascination with or the obsession with action and, and doing things in the short term or short term financial pressures? Oh, well, a lot of it's the way our financial system is set up, which that's a whole other conversation. But um, we don't have a lot of incentives to take that balcony perspective in your ordinary executive's life. You know, their 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 world is scheduled out so deeply for months sometimes. I mean, I've had people try to schedule meetings with chief executives, and they're like, "Oh well, let's let's set up a meeting for when he's on a plane." And but but that meeting's already scheduled six people out. <laughs> you know, so I think they're just so busy they don't realize that it takes time to step back and reflect and see what the bigger picture really is. And when you talk to CEOs and people in the C-suite, how do they respond to, the, to these ideas? 
um, kind of three responses. One is, don't be ridiculous, that's not me. Two is, oh, I never thought about it that way, maybe I should think about it. And three is, yeah, you know, we, we have processes in place to regularly do this. Do attitudes change? I mean, you travel a lot. Mm -hmm. Different attitudes in, in, in different countries? Yes, yes. I would say um, countries that are more stable, where there's less open competition, tend to be well, less fluid. You know, there's, there's less of this kind of inflection points coming and kicking you uh, because there just is less opportunity for them to do that. But countries where the markets are more open, and it's interesting, I mean, if I think about the United States, one of the things that I think is very interesting is you've got this juxtaposition of some industries, some sectors, which are becoming actually more oligopolistic. So airlines, cable television, internet services, contrasted with some that are just wildly competitive. And, you know, it's fascinating to me that you've got this juxtaposition of the two in one economy. Well, where will that go, though? I mean, uh, is, is that sustainable? No, I don't think the oligopolies are. Um, I mean, we were just talking about airlines earlier, and, you know, the, the, they're going to end up getting their levels of customer service regulated if they're not careful, <laughs> because, because the, the public is so annoyed with them. But the ever extreme, the wild west of kind of competition, mm -hmm. of intense competition, is, is, is that viable as well in the long term? Um, it can be if competitors do it properly, um, it, but it is difficult. I mean, it shaves margins. It gets people thinking very much in terms of the next move rather than the next strategy. Uh, so that that has its own problems. And when does the book come out? Uh, well, we're in the proposal stage at the moment, so we're hoping within a year. And you spend spend your time tra traveling the world, talking about these ideas. What do you enjoy about it? Oh. I mean, it's a very stressful, <laughs> demanding thing. You spend an awful lot of time in, in airports. You do. Um, I love the people. I love hearing what they're thinking about, what they're worried about. I love learning from different environments. Um, that's very rewarding to me. And then sometimes when you can bring something... See, I, want, I think one of the things that myself, as well as the other thinkers that you work with, one of our great advantages is we get to talk to lots of different companies. And we actually get paid to think, which is astonishing. <laughs> so when you talk to people from different environments and you say, hey, have you thought about this or thought about that? And they're eyes light up and a light bulb goes off. That's very rewarding. Rita McGrath, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. That was a Thinkers 50 podcast. Thinkers 50 podcasts are produced by KDH Creative.